Thank you so much, Michael, for that incredibly generous introduction. I want to thank Kaya, who I think is outside, but who has been an amazing administrator. She's been one of the best people to work with on this sort of administrative side of things. I just want to recognize her. Thanks to James for getting the ball rolling on making this happen. And, and thank you all for coming. I think hope. I think what I understand from whom I see in the audience already is that this is a lovely meeting of sort of Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies, which is kind of my goal in life, really. So that's nice to sort of have that embodied here in the audience. I'm going to start today with a story, a story about a man named Shalom Asaraf, who was not a household name. I know we have an Asaraf in the audience. I think we've determined that it's a different branch of the family. It's a very common name. There are Asarafs all over, Mag- all over the Maghreb. But in any case, this Shalom Asaraf, not exactly a household name today, but at the time in Fez in the 19th century, he was really one of the bigwigs. Um, he was one of the most prominent, wealthy, successful Jewish merchants in the city. And he did most of his business with Muslims, as did many Jewish merchants. On February 9th of the year 1880, Shalom sued a Muslim man, a man named Ahmed ibn Abdul al-Jalil al-Qamri, in a Sharia court, in an Islamic court. In the lawsuit, Shalom basically claimed that Ahmed had guaranteed a debt that was owed to him. Basically, Ahmed said, sure, you know, my relatives, yeah, they owe you money, I'll guarantee it, I'll, I'll promise to pay it. Um, and this sort of thing was very common. And he had not paid, and Shalom wanted him to pay up. However, this time, Shalom didn't have any proof of the debt. He didn't have any sort of written document saying that Ahmed had agreed to pay this debt. Either he'd neglected to get this sort of written document signed by notaries, which was, again, something that he did most of the time, or maybe he'd lost it, or who knows. But Shalom didn't give up. The judge basically said, it's nice that you say that Ahmed owes you this money, but unless you can give me some proof, you're out of luck. And so Shalom went and found 12 Muslim men who all agreed to testify that they had seen Ahmed promise to give Shalom the money in question. This is the document. It's called a lafif. It's a document of attestation, which is very common in Morocco, a little bit elsewhere in the Maghreb, but basically little to unknown in the rest of the Islamic world. And it's this particular kind of document where you have 12 ordinary men who aren't necessarily trained jurists, who aren't necessarily particularly trustworthy. They're just guys who happen to be there, and they come and they attest to what they saw with their own eyes. So these 12 Muslim men came, and then, of course, Shalom had to not only gather them all, but bring them before a notary and have the notary record their testimony in Moroccan dialect, by the way, which is very interesting. So when you read these documents, you're actually reading Derija, you're reading Moroccan dialect. And then, finally, Shalom took this document and presented it to the judge and said, here's my proof. Now, this is already pretty good for a Jewish merchant who had no formal training in Islamic law. But then Shalom came up against another obstacle. This Ahmed was really determined not to pay him. And Ahmed went out of his way to go solicit a fatwa, a legal ruling, from a local mufti in Fez saying that this lafif was not valid. At this point, you would understand if Shalom said, okay, forget it. I give up. I'll go try to get other debts paid. You know, I'll leave this Ahmed guy alone. But Shalom, for whatever reason, really didn't want to give up. And he went and solicited a counter-fatwa. Another, he went to another mufti who read the first fatwa that Ahmed had, had commissioned, essentially, and said, no, no, this first fatwa, fatwa is wrong. 
actually that Lafif document is totally fine and Shalom is in the right and he should be paid his back his money. Ahmed then went to another, a third mufti and got a counter-counter fatwa. Shalom went to a fourth mufti and got a counter-counter-counter fatwa. And in the end, finally, Shalom prevailed. And the judge said, you're right, you win, Ahmed owes you this money. Now, as these things often go, we don't actually know that Ahmed paid up, and it seems that the most that Ahmed did was get somebody else to guarantee the debt, so it's not like, it's not like Shalom really came out all, but he won a moral victory, right, and he won the legal victory. The fact that Shalom was able to navigate all of these aspects of Islamic law was no accident. He was a regular presence, both in the Sharia courts and even more frequently in the offices, in the offices of the notary's public who produced the documents like, like this Lafif. And indeed, during the height of Shalom's career as a merchant, he ended up in legal institutions in Fez something like once a week. He was really there quite a lot. And this familiarity was not that unusual for a merchant like Shalom, including Jewish merchants. Many Jewish merchants, not just in Fez, but all over Morocco, were intimately familiar with the workings of Islamic legal institutions, because they did so much of their business with Muslims. And this is a big part, I argue, of what facilitated Jews' integration into the larger Islamic society in which they lived. Their ability to navigate Islamic courts facilitated their economic integration and their social integration and ultimately their legal integration, not in the sense of legal status, but in the sense of participating in Morocco's legal institutions. And this is what my book tries to document, how Jews lived their lives across legal lines, that is, outside of their own Jewish legal institutions and in the legal institutions run by non-Jews in Morocco. So what, my, what I do in the book is I follow Jews through four sets of legal institutions. At the local level, I look at how Jews move back and forth between Jewish courts and Islamic courts, mainly focusing on the ways in which they use Sharia courts, and I'll talk more about that today. Then at the national level, I also look at how Jews used courts of appeal. Basically, there was a sort of royal court of appeal that anybody, Jew or Muslim, could write to the sultan, and the sultan would sort of execute a kind of administrative justice. Um, and then finally, I look at the international level how especially starting in the second half of the 19th century, Moroccan Jews became very adept at sort of two ways of interacting with international actors. On the one hand, they petitioned to international Jewish organizations like the Alliance Israelite Universelle or to local consular officials, local diplomats and ambassadors, um, to ask them for help in resolving their local legal affairs. And then at the other, in the other sort of sphere of international legal affairs, they also interacted with the consular court system, right? Basically, there was a system that is usually referred to as the capitulations, whereby European governments exercised the right to have jurisdiction over their own nationals and anybody under their protection in Morocco. So a whole network of consular courts sprang up the French embassy had a court, the American embassy had a court, the Spanish embassy, the Italian embassy, the Portuguese embassy, even, you know, there weren't that many Americans in Morocco, but nonetheless. And so Jews 
increasingly had access to these consular courts as well, and these became another set of legal institutions in which they were involved. Today, I want to focus mainly on Sharia courts and particularly the sort of relationship between Sharia courts and Jewish courts at the local level. And then also I want to look at consular courts, just to give you a sort of sense of some of the arguments I make in the book. And then I'll conclude with a very brief look at what happened to the Moroccan legal system after 1912, when France colonized Morocco, and how that changed under colonial rule. But before I get into the nitty-gritty, I wanted to say a little bit about the sort of bigger historiographical interventions that I'm trying to make with this study. Why bother studying Jews in the Moroccan legal system, right? What does that tell us? And I'm sort of, I'm aiming at three different narratives. For the Jewish historians, I'm trying to tell a story about Jewish law that isn't an internalist story. Most of the time when people have written about the history of Jewish law, they've been very interested in how Jewish law has kept the Jewish community together, has sort of made it into this strong entity that survived years of exile, years of diaspora. But it also tends to be a story that focuses on Jews staying within the Jewish community. However, Jews didn't stay within the Jewish community legally, certainly not in Morocco and really not elsewhere either, although we're only beginning to get a sense of how this worked in other places. Jews were always in relationships, commercial relationships, social relationships with non-Jews, and that brought them into non-Jewish courts. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is understand the ways in which Jews were in these sort of quotidian relationships with Muslims through law, and to use law as a window onto Jews' integration into the broader society rather than their isolation. Secondly, I'm interested in a kind of Middle Eastern story about how law worked, and particularly how Islamic law worked. There's been a lot of work done recently on the history of Sharia courts, and particularly the history of Sharia courts as sort of living institutions as opposed to the history of jurisprudence. There's nothing wrong with the history of jurisprudence. I'm very interested in it, but that's just not what I do. I'm, I'm more interested in law as it was lived and as it was actually experienced by ordinary people. However, Sharia courts never existed in isolation. They were always one among, um, amongst a number of different legal institutions that sort of worked together. This, this type of situation is very common, not just in the Islamic world really anywhere. It's usually referred to as legal pluralism when there are a bunch of different legal institutions existing together. However, even though many people recognize that the Middle East was legally pluralist, very few have actually looked at the ways in which Sharia courts interacted with other kinds of courts, either Muslim or non-Muslim. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to figure out in this book, is how did Sharia courts coexist with Jewish courts, with consular courts? What were the interactions between them? Because the same people were going back and forth, right? Shalom Asaraf was using the Jewish court as well as the Islamic court. So how did the judges and other officials of these institutions deal with that kind of movement? And then finally, I'm interested in thinking more carefully about legal pluralism at an abstract level. So for people interested in the history of law, legal pluralism is a concept that's been around for decades, but it's often used as a kind of end of the conversation as, a sort of, as opposed to the beginning. And rather than just say that Morocco was legally pluralist, I'm interested in understanding how that worked and how did the fact of these different legal institutions living together change their nature. And so what I argue is that the fact of having a Jewish court and a Muslim court operating in the same city and having people go back and forth between them actually produced a kind of legal convergence 
a way in which the legal practices of Jewish law and of Islamic law ended up moving closer together. Now, this doesn't mean that Jewish courts became Islamic or Islamic courts applied Jewish law. It means rather that the two institutions figured out a kind of modus vivendi and a kind of way of cooperating, sometimes explicitly and sometimes tacitly, such that they worked together as opposed to working against each other. Let me tell you a little bit more about Sharia courts. I gave you a little taste in the story about Shalom Asaraf and the lawsuit with Ahmed, but now let me, let me look a little bit more broadly at how Jews in Fez and in other cities in Morocco used Sharia courts on a daily basis. Before we really get into the local level and Sharia courts and, and Jewish courts, though, we need to know a little bit about the respective jurisdictions of these institutions. Sharia courts technically, well, okay, in general, Jews in the Islamic world actually had quite a bit of autonomy, quite a bit of legal autonomy, and they had the right to operate their own legal institutions. So these Jewish courts that Jews operated applied Jewish law and had jurisdiction, formal jurisdiction, granted to them by the state, by the, by the sovereign, over intra-Jewish civil cases, so non-criminal cases. Sometimes, actually, Jewish courts even did preside over criminal cases, and in Fez, there was actually a Jewish prison run entirely by the Jewish community, so if there were sort of minor infractions committed amongst Jews, a Jew might be put in the Jewish prison. But in general, these Jewish courts dealt mostly with things like marriage, divorce, uh, commercial transactions, mortgages, loans, etc. And then Islamic law also had a requirement that any time a case involved a Muslim, the jurisdiction would be with the Islamic court. So even though, Muslim, even though Jews had autonomy for intra-Jewish cases, if a Jew was involved in a lawsuit with a Muslim, that would technically be under the jurisdiction of the Islamic court. And of course, Muslims, you know, intra-Muslim cases would also be under the jurisdiction of the Islamic court. So the fact that Jews had autonomy didn't mean that they were always within their own legal system because any time they were involved in lawsuits with Muslims, they ended up having to go to the Muslim court. Historiographically speaking, I think this is really important because there's been, there's been especially in the last couple of decades, there have been a number of studies looking at the ways in which Jews in the Ottoman Empire use Islamic courts. But they tend to focus only on the elective use, when Jews took other Jews to a Sharia court. And that is interesting, and that is something that I look at here. But the quotidian, the way that Jews used Islamic courts the vast majority of the time was not when they went with other Jews. It was when they were involved with, in lawsuits with Muslims. And that, for some reason, has not been something that historians have looked at much. And that, I think, is actually much more significant, much more interesting, precisely because it's, it's what happened most of the time. It's what, it, it was the norm. And I think it tells you much more about the way these legal institutions were used on a daily basis. Most of the kinds of cases that ended up, the intercommunal cases, cases between Jews and Muslims that ended up in the Sharia court were commercial cases because that's most of the time the Jews and Muslims were in relationship with each other, they were commercial relationships. The nature of commerce in 19th century Morocco meant that courts were extremely important, that legal institutions were extremely important to the way commerce worked, largely because Morocco did not have a modern banking system before the early 20th century, which meant that if I was a customer and I wanted to borrow money, if I didn't have the cash to buy whatever I needed right then, I couldn't go to the bank and take out a loan. 
I would either have to go to a specialized money lender or much more commonly, the merchants themselves doubled as money lenders and they sold the vast majority of their goods on credit. This was particularly important in the late 19th century once the Moroccan market opened to imports. And this is how Shalom Asaraf and his family made their money. So this is a picture of the guy in the center with the fez is, is Shalom Asaraf's eldest son, Yaakov Asaraf, who sort of inherited the family business. And they're sitting there at a wedding, and in front of them is, are these two very fancy Moroccan tea sets. Now, Moroccan mint tea, which I'm sure anybody here who has ever been to Morocco or been to a Moroccan restaurant has tasted, is a, you know, it's sort of quintessentially Moroccan, but actually it is a perfect example of this import economy and the way it impacted Morocco because all of the elements of Moroccan tea, except the mint, were imported. The green tea was imported mainly by British merchants. The sugar was imported, again, mainly by British merchants, although not only. And the teapots were actually specially designed for the Moroccan market by British companies. The Asarafs did not make their money selling tea. They made their money selling the kind of fabric that you see underneath the tea. And they were mainly importers of cotton and silk. The cotton was actually probably originally grown in Morocco, but milled in the UK and then imported to Morocco and then sold through middlemen like Shalom Asaraf, who would buy in bulk and then distribute to people in Fez and in the surrounding countryside. And this, this kind of text, these textiles were very much in demand in Morocco at the time. They were cheaper and better than the indigenously produced textiles, but they also required cash. They required a cash economy. So, and most people didn't have much cash. So Shalom Asaraf did most of his business on credit. Most of the time that he sold people things, he gave it to them without them paying and they agreed to pay later. But the only way that he could be sure that they would actually pay their debts was to have legal documents drawn up by essentially Muslim notaries public, Odul in Arabic, who would draw up these often fairly brief, standard, you know, legalese documents saying somebody like Ahmed had bought so much cotton from Shalom Asaraf and agreed to pay it and for this price and agreed to pay it back within a month, within three months, within six months, whatever it was. And then at the bottom, you can see those sort of two blocks there and two blocks there. Those are the signatures of the Odol. In the Moroccan Sharia courts, for various reasons, which I won't get into right now, but if you're interested, please ask me, and I'm, I'm happy to get into it during the question and answer session. These sorts of notarized documents produced by, by state-appointed Odol, by state-appointed notaries public, were the gold standard of evidence. If you wanted to go to court and say that somebody owed you money, the standard procedure was to produce one of these documents as proof. This is actually rather unusual in the Islamic world because most Islamic schools of law have a great preference for oral testimony over written evidence. The Maliki school happens to be much more favorable towards oral testimony, uh, towards written documents, and for various reasons that remain unclear by the 19th century, Moroccan courts in particular had basically come to rely almost exclusively on these sorts of written documents, at least as the sort of first round of evidence. If they were contested, then you would bring in oral testimony from witnesses, but if they weren't contested, this is generally what you brought in as proof. 
So this means that pretty much every time Shalom Asaraf made a sale, he was also going to the legal institution. He was also going to the notary's public. So even without having to sue people, he was constantly engaging with these judicial officials. This one you can see is crossed out because it, he, because it was paid eventually, right? That's what they would do. Or sometimes they would rip the signatures of the Odul to show that, that the document was paid. Now, the fact that Shalom was constantly appearing before these notaries public, but then also before judges, because he did sometimes have to sue people, meant that he developed a pretty intimate familiarity with the workings of Islamic law. Even though he'd never studied Islamic law formally, he almost certainly didn't know how to read Arabic. He spoke Arabic, right? Jews, the vast majority of Jews in Morocco spoke Arabic as their mother tongue, but they, didn't, they wrote in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic written in Hebrew letters, and that, indeed, the, the few documents that, we've see, that I've seen from the Asaraf family have Shalom's signature or his son's signatures in Arabic. And so he amassed all of these documents and all of this knowledge basically through experience. But it paid off. And indeed, Shalom became known as somebody who was familiar with the Islamic legal system to the point that not only other Jews, but also Muslims would ask him to be their official representative in court. Basically, Islamic law doesn't have lawyers. There's no sort of institution of lawyers. People would, the, 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 basis, the, the basic idea is that you would represent yourself. But sometimes, either if you couldn't represent yourself or if you preferred not to, you would appoint a wakil, a legal representative, sort of like an agent, who would basically go to court on your behalf. And Shalom was the wakil, the agent, the representative, for a number of his Muslim associates. It's not entirely clear why. It might have been that they weren't able to go to court and they just trusted him, or it might have been that they felt that Shalom knew more about Islamic law than they did because he was in these institutions all the time, right? He was familiar enough with them that he was certainly as competent in navigating Sharia courts as many of his Muslim associates, and and, and possibly even more so. What this shows is that the kind of commercial relationships that then developed into legal relationships could also sometimes evolve to relationships of trust. Because clearly to to appoint somebody as your wakil, you have to trust them. You have to trust that they're not going to do a bad job representing you, that they're not going to tell lies about you, that they're not going to take bribes from the other side. So clearly these kinds of commercial relationships that Shalom had would sometimes at least develop into into actual sort of social bonds of trust. Now I want to say just a little bit about the, court, the, the sort of movement between Jewish courts and Islamic courts that I alluded to earlier. Because again, even though Shalom was constantly in Islamic courts of law, and even though he was very familiar with Islamic law, he was not exclusively in Islamic courts. He was also using Jewish courts, right? And, it's, and I think what, one of the things that's most important about understanding how law worked at the lo- local level was understanding that kind of movement. And what I found in looking at the way that Jews moved between Jewish courts and Islamic courts is that Muslim judicial officials were often willing to accommodate the existence of Jewish law and Jewish legal institutions as a separate legitimate legal order, even though Islamic courts were technically only supposed to apply Islamic law. So let me tell you another story about how this worked. Shalom Asaraf passed away in 1910. And he had three sons. He also had a bunch of daughters, but according to Jewish law, daughters don't inherit if there are sons. So 
basically the daughters didn't matter for these purposes. And when his when he passed away, uh, when he passed away, his three sons came together and they went to Odol, to two Odol, to two of these notaries public and had them draw up a legal document in Arabic attesting to the division of inheritance that they had agreed on. But the legal document explains very explicitly that the division of inheritance that they had agreed on conformed to Jewish law. And indeed, the notaries noted down that the rabbi, Vidal Hasarfati, one of the three main rabbis in Fez, had come before them and confirmed that the division of inheritance was according to Jewish law. Why would three nice Jewish boys bother going to a Muslim judicial official to confirm the Jewish legal division of inheritance, right? What's going on here? Well, first of all, first of all, we can imagine that these three sons had already gone to Jewish notaries and had already had a sort of similar document drawn up in Hebrew according to Jewish law. I never found that document, but there are actually very few Jewish legal documents that survived from the Asaraf family for unknown reasons. So we can imagine that they did that. Why would they then go to the extra trouble and expense of also getting an Arabic legal document drawn up? The reason is that some people, Jews especially, knew that there were differences between Jewish and Islamic law that could be exploited to their advantage. For instance, the, the son's sisters, right? Shalom Asaraf's daughters, who under Jewish law had no right to inherit it, but under Islamic law actually would have had a right to inherit a portion of his estate. Under Islamic law, girls are allowed to, are, are, are apportioned half of what their brothers get, but they still get something, which is better than Jewish law. And indeed, historically, we know that many Jewish women very savvily would try to get their inheritance in an Islamic court if they knew that the Islamic court would give them something that the Jewish court wouldn't. However, had these daughters hypothetically gone to a Qadi, gone to a Muslim judge, and said, hey, we want a share of our father's inheritance according to Islamic law, the Asaraf brothers could have brought this legal document signed by, an, by Islamic notaries public in Arabic to the judge and said, sorry, no, we've already gotten this covered. We've already had it affirmed by your people, by your notaries, that Jewish law gives us the right to apportion the estate this way, and these girls get no share. Now, of course, I don't know that this was actually what they were worried about. Perhaps it was some other cousins. Who knows? But this kind of maneuvering between courts was something that people did do. And it was largely the reason why people would end up getting documents notarized according to both legal systems. The fact that these Muslim notaries were willing to write this Islamic legal document affirming Jewish law is precisely an example of what I'm, what I'm talking about in terms of legal accommodation. Because they could have said, this has nothing to do with us. This is a Jewish, <laughs> you're trying to do something, you're trying to divide this inheritance up according to Jewish law. This has nothing to do with Islamic law. Like, why are you even here? But instead, they recognized the validity of Jewish law as a kind of customary law, orf in Arabic. And in fact, that's a term that gets used a lot in these sorts of documents that is valid for Jews, right? And that can be affirmed and upheld even in Sharia courts. Now I want to switch 
directions a little bit and move away from the local level in Sharia courts and just talk to you at least briefly about consular courts. As I said, these capitulation treaties gave European and, well, European and North American states kind of legal extraterritoriality and jurisdiction over their own nationals and protégés. And increasingly, Jews in 19th century Morocco took advantage of the benefits of extraterritoriality and either became naturalized abroad or got protection. So Shalom Asarov actually managed to get American protection in 1871. And this technically meant that if he was sued, he could only be sued in an American consular court. Now, that actually didn't happen because things didn't always work out the way they were supposed to, certainly not in the relatively chaotic legal system of 19th century Morocco, and sometimes Shalom was actually also sued in a Sharia court. But in any case, he, he did you know, use the, the advantages of being a consular protege in various ways, and the American ambassador wrote lots of letters on his behalf, and, and this was one of the ways probably also in which he made some of his money. Now, traditionally, the fact that Jews like Shalom Asaraf got access to these consular courts has been seen as a way for them to move out of the Islamic courts and into these European courts, right? And, and much of the historiography has seen this as a kind of way for them to move away from what was supposedly a, a, a sort of discriminatory legal system towards a more egalitarian legal system. But that narrative, I think, completely misunderstands the way these consular courts actually worked. Because first of all, Jews who got consular protection or foreign nationality and who used the consular courts never stopped using the Sharia courts, right? They were always moving back and forth. And the reason, again, has to do with the way jurisdiction played out. Because even if Shalom himself could not be sued in a Sharia court once he became an American protege, if he had to sue a Moroccan, then he had to do so in a Moroccan court. And of course, Shalom Asaraf continued to have lots of commercial relationships with Moroccans. In fact, most of his commercial relationships were with Moroccans, so he was constantly in Sharia courts. I think more broadly, people like, like Shalom Asaraf didn't see consular courts as some sort of escape hatch to get away from Sharia courts, because Sharia courts were something that they were able to use to great effect, to bolster their business. They weren't trying to escape Sharia courts. They saw consular courts as a kind of extra layer of opportunity where in certain instances they might be better served by British law or American law or French law, depending on the nature of the case. So this isn't a case that has to do with Shalom Asaraf, but it's, it's a very nice illustration of why one might choose to go to a consular court. And there was a case in which three Jewish merchants in Tetuan were, were suing a company for a debt that was owed to them. Sorry, no, they were being sued by a British company. And they were all British subjects, actually. They were all under British protection, so they could have gone to the British court. But they all said, nope, sorry, we don't want to adjudicate this in the British court. We want to adjudicate in the, in the Sharia court. And the consul, the consul in Tetuan was really surprised and said, why? And they said, well, in the British court, we'll be liable for all of the interest on the debt that we haven't yet paid, whereas in the Sharia court, you can't charge outright interest, so they'll save a huge amount of money. So that's a kind of very clear-cut instance of why one might actually, at many times, prefer Sharia courts over consular courts. So again, we see a lot of this sort of moving back and forth between these different legal regimes and Again, there's a lot more to say about this, but in the interest of time, 
I want to sort of wrap up by saying a little bit about what happened to this whole legal system, to this legal pluralism and legal convergence after 1912, after the French arrived in Morocco and set up the Protect. Briefly, when the French got to Morocco, they perceived the Moroccan legal system as a mess, chaotic, irrational, and in great need of reform, precisely because people were moving around amongst these different legal orders. They were sometimes going to Jewish courts. They were sometimes going to Muslim courts. They were sometimes going to consular courts. Sometimes they would go to many courts as once for the same issue. And the French did not like this. The French were very into centralization and having a kind of clear jurisdictional hierarchy and every, everything having a clear assignment in one type of court. And that is what they implemented in Morocco. However, in Morocco, the French were also very loath to completely change anything, right? They had had that experience in Algeria. They'd gone into Algeria. They'd assimilated everything. They'd done away with all local institutions. It had gone fairly badly. And so in Morocco, they wanted a more associationist approach, right? They didn't want to do away with Moroccan institutions. They wanted to preserve and reform them. So rather than making an entirely new legal system, <laughs> the French did what they thought was just a sort of makeover of the existing legal system, right? So they, they preserved Jewish courts, but they reduced their jurisdiction. They preserved Sharia courts, but they reduced their jurisdiction. They preserved the state courts, but they expanded their jurisdiction. All of these reforms served to, even though on the face of things, they didn't fundamentally change the Moroccan system, the Moroccan legal system, actually they did. Precisely because the kinds of jurisdictional boundaries that had previously separated Jewish law from Islamic law before 1912 had been very fuzzy. And Jews had been able to, and Muslims actually, had been able to cross them with relative ease. After 1912, when the French instituted their reforms, these jurisdictional boundaries became much more rigid. And it became much more difficult for a Jew, like Shalom Asraf's sons, to go to a to a Muslim court for something that should have been under the jurisdiction of a Jewish court or vice versa. Now, of course, this didn't happen overnight. And indeed, when the French first promulgated their reforms, at first there was resistance on both sides. Jews continued to go to Sharia courts and Muslims actually continued to go to Jewish courts for some, for some things. But after a decade or two of insisting on these sorts of boundaries, the French succeeded in essentially legally isolating Jews and Muslims to an extent that they never had been in the pre-colonial period. Now, there were many other things that helped move Jews and Muslims apart under French rule. I'm, not, I'm certainly not arguing that it was all about law and legal reform, but law and legal reform contributed to a broader policy of essentially divide and rule, where Jews and Muslims were classified, and not just Jews and Muslims, Berbers as well, were classified as very different sort of hermetically sealed categories that really shouldn't mix or should only mix under certain circumstances in a controlled way. And legal reform is one of the ingredients in this policy that I think has previously not really been recognized, largely because historians have sort of assumed that what the French said about their reforms was true, that they weren't actually reforming that much, they were just improving, whereas in fact they were completely transforming the nature of the Moroccan legal system. So part of what I'm trying to recover in this study is precisely this pre-colonial, this pre-reformed 
way of doing law, which involved, again, living lives across legal lines, particularly for Jews, but not only for Jews. And I think this was symbolic of a larger kind of integration in Morocco, whereby Jews and Muslims were very different, right? They had different religion, they had different legal status, but their separateness did not mean isolation, right? And so having separate legal institutions similarly did not mean isolation from one another, and that that kind of legal integration could exist not just in spite of, but because of the legal pluralism of Moroccan society. Thank you.